0: We are continuing our series this morning on the character of God. And uh, over the last month, we've been on this journey to define God by his terms and not our terms. Uh, You know, it's so easy for us, uh, even as followers of Christ, to try to define God in our own image instead of remembering that God created us in his image. And, uh, you know, we, we think that God ought to get angry about the things we get angry about. We think that God ought to be passionate about the things that we're passionate about and God ought to work the way that we want him to work instead of us understanding that as we understand God better, we'll become more passionate about the things he's passionate about. We'll become angry about the things that make him angry. We'll become excited about the things that make him excited. We'll start working where he's working instead of trying to direct him with who we are and what we want. And so instead of searching and embracing and letting God shape us, we, we want to search and embrace God and let him shape us instead of trying to shape a God in our own image. Because what is a God shaped in, by the hands of man or in the image of man? It's nothing more than an idol, is it? I mean, you know, we we kind of live in a cultured society where we don't have idols necessarily in our apartments or in our homes that we like come in and bow down to and worship and we read stories of the bible when they made an idol and they took their gold and all this stuff and made a calf and we go how how dumb were these people (laughs) but the truth is We create our own idols. We form our own things that we worship and give our loyalty to every day. And so I want you to understand God from the very beginning has begun against idols. And he's not against idols because he's this jealous, whiny God. That's like, oh, why are you worshiping that instead of me? And like, am I not good enough for you? That's not the God that we worship. That's not the God of the Bible. It's not that he's jealous or upset and he's mad that we chose to worship something else. He hates idols because he knows that idols destroy us. They manipulate us. And idols, not only manipulate us, we use them to manipulate other people. Think about it. Even when we try to maybe sometimes create a God in our own image, you know, we create a God that's Republican or Democrat, right? I mean, we we like to create a God who's black, white, Asian, Hispanic, you know, whatever, whatever associate Indian, you know, whatever he associates with. We like to create a God who's an American God. I, I hate to admit this. I was at a conference one time, and there was this song that somebody sung that literally made me ill, and it was sung... It was a song that said, thank God, I'm an American. And the song literally went on, you know, thank God I'm American. I'm not a Kazakhstan. I'm not an Afghanistan. I'm like, are you, are you kidding me? I'm like, this, we've created this American God. And you know, I kind of walked out. I was like, I can't take this, you know? Like right afterwards, they get up and probably did a sermon on missions. And I'm like, do you guys even understand what we're talking about here? but even missions right sometimes we think let's take our american god to people and get them to embrace that that's an idol that's an idol we manipulate it manipulates us and let me tell you the difference between an idol and the true god an idol requires that we first love it to then get love in return We must pay a penance. We must prove that we are worthy of the love of that idol. The idol takes more than it ever gives. It requires more than it ever rewards. You can always identify an idol because its worship will drain you and leave you empty. Versus when we worship the true God, it fills us up to overflowing and fulfillment. And this leads us exactly to the quality of God that we're going to look at today. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to look at a, a characteristic of God that you're like, oh yeah, I've, I've heard this one. Like this is, this is an easy one, Well, it's not so easy. Once we look at the implications of it in our lives. So we're going to, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 is where we'll start, and it says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because what? God is love. That word love is used a lot in this passage, and, you know, everyone in here probably has a different understanding of what that word means. We've all experienced love love in, in many different ways, and so what does this passage mean when it says God is love? His idea, God's love is not talked about here in terms of earthly ideas. It's not, you know, the love between friends or the love between family or even the most significant relationship in our life. God's love, it's not a love that costs you or drains you or even requires anything of you. It is this extravagant, passionate love. And the word I want to use to describe it this morning, his character, is this, is God's love is amorous. And that's a weird word to use for God, all right? Because when we hear that word, amorous usually is a word used to describe and reserve for the love between two people that are passionately seeking after one another. It's even equated sometimes to sexualization or sensual love. But at its core, amorous means this. It means a desire to be completely intimate with someone else. And that's why I wanted to use that word this morning, because what God desires above all things and the way that he loves us is to pursue intimacy with us in our lives. Intimacy, God's love for us is this intimate love fueled by passion, driven by a desire to remove any barriers and, and, and hindrances for us to connect with him. It is literally clearing the path way for us to have a full intimate relationship with God. It's a clean, pure love based out of God's righteousness and your virtue. So what what does this kind of love mean for you and me? And how do we view this in relationship to who God is and how we relate to God? Because oftentimes when we talk about God's love, like we think of it as like this friendship kind of love. Like God's my friend. You know, we're we're buddies. He knows me. I know him. We hang out. I enjoy spending time with God. He's a cool guy. You know, Sundays are a fun time. Like, I'm glad you were not going to hang out this morning, God. But it's it doesn't go beyond that. Maybe for some of us, it is this idea of like He's part of our family. You know, He's He's part of what we do. He's He's a member of our family. He's regularly involved in our life. We pray on a regular basis. We look at His Word. He's Part of how we approach our lives, and that's great too, but the way God describes the relationship he wants with us, this intimate relationship, is that of, of deep love, deep, deep love, a deeper love than you and I have ever experienced with anyone else, and so what I want us to do this morning is kind of tear down a few thoughts that we think about, what we have to do for God's love, and then rebuild it according to First John 4 here as to what really is the love of God. And so there's some concepts I want to eliminate in our view of God that I just want to throw out here very quickly. And the first is this. You don't have to prove yourself to receive God's love. I want to get that off the table to begin with. Some of us think it is up to me to make God love me. We do not have to prove yourself to receive God's love. It says that while you were sinners, while you were at your very worst, Christ died for you, came for the biggest gift God could give you. He gave you at your worst, not at your best. So you don't have to prove yourself to receive God's love, and you don't have to promote yourself to earn God's love. You don't have to make yourself look better than you are. You don't have to puff yourself up and and tell God all of your deeds. List for him. It says our righteousness before God is like what? Filthy rags. Dirty rags. We can't promote ourselves to make God love us more. And then this, you don't have to pretend you are something else to keep God's love. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to, well, you know, God thought I was this when we first, when I first started coming. I, I can't be honest. I'll just keep this facade up the whole time. I'll pretend I'm something else. That's, not, and that's a tiring way to do life, isn't it? To pretend that you're something that you're not. And God says you don't have to do that. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to promote yourself. You don't have to pretend you're something to keep God's love. So I want to knock those out. And now what I want to do is rebuild our idea of what God's love is. So look at verse 9. First John 4, verse 9. And it's going to tell us this first quality of God's love. And it says this in this the love of God. In this the, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live. Through him. So the first thing we see here about God's love is this. It is an ever-present love. It's here. This verse says that God came and manifest himself among us. He came to be with us. He isn't waiting for us to come and to find him. He isn't hiding for us. We don't have to go pursue him. We don't have to, like, find him hidden behind some rock and be like, Oh, God, I found you, right? We're not playing this, this cosmic game of hide-and-seek with God. It's not the way he is here. One of the names of Christ is literally Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is here. He's now and forever here. This is an incredible thought. Because most of us are used to experiencing love in a way that we have to convince someone to spend time with us, right? You remember that first time you like called that person you were interested in, like dating? like you picked up that phone like maybe you're nervous if you're like me like you dialed the number like you dialed most of the numbers then you hung up before you actually got to the last number and then you're like okay i'll call her maybe you now in this world you like get the text ready and you don't send the text quite yet but i remember thinking oh if you would just that that person would just pick up I, I remember katie and i had just started dating and uh i went to her house one day and was just going to see if she wanted to do something and I remember walk I didn't call ahead of time and I went up to the door and I rang the doorbell and like I was just so nervous like and like nobody answered and like I knew her car was there and I was like I'll hit it one more time and like I hit it and she didn't, and, like, I was just getting so distraught. Like, she's looking through the window, and she saw me, and she was like, oh, my gosh, is that Patrick guy. Please go away. You know, I'm just thinking, I'm thinking the worst. And so I, I leave, and I, I go back, and I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to call. I'm like, tell her I'm sorry. So I called. And she was like, oh, hey. And I was like, hey, I just came by. She was like, you did? How did I miss you? And I was like, I don't know. She was like, oh, I was in the back room ironing with music on. And I was like, oh. Whew, like, I, I thought she was rejecting me, and she just missed my my call. But that feeling of we, we feel like we have to present ourselves and for somebody to choose us, and that's not the way it is with God. He's here. He's now. Even in church, like, we don't have to do something to make God's presence show up here. It's already here. We don't have to pray a certain way. We don't have to give a certain amount. We don't have to... God's presence was here this morning before we got here. It'll be here when we leave. We get to dwell in his presence. And and when God is ever present, a few things happen. One, he can see you, which means he sees all of you. And we talked about this before because he can see he accepts you holy. There's nothing hidden from God, but not, not only can he see you, but when you're that close to somebody, he can hear you. When you cry out for help. God, it says is ever pre- he has an ear that is ready to hear and respond, which means he can also help you and sustain you. God's ever-present love knows you, he sees you, he hears you, and he can help you. God's love never leaves you, never forsakes you, never abandons you. It won't diminish because of our actions or our attitudes. His love is ever-present because he is ever present. So God's love is ever present. The second thing we're going to find is in verse 10. It says this, "In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins." That's not a word probably most of us use in our daily understanding like, "Hey, you know, will you be, will you propitiate for me today?" You know, that's not a word that we maybe understand. And it's basically This idea of sacrifice. God is love was sacrificial. His verse says that he provided a payment. That's what propitiation means for us, for our shortcomings, for our failures. Think about it. This God knows that we're not going to live up to the commitments that we make to him. He knows it. There's no doubt in his mind. He knows that we're going to fall short. We even talked about this a few weeks ago. He says, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar. Don't, don't don't act like you don't sin. doesn't mean that God's okay with her. Somebody, he just knows it's there. And because we fall short in our ability to love him, instead of holding this against us, this is what is amazing to me about his sacrificial love here. He not only forgives us for this, but this is what is the amazing part. He then makes up the difference. He fills in the gaps. You know, it says in our weakness, he is made strong. God takes the shortcomings in our life and fills them up. He makes us whole. He makes us complete. It's this overwhelming thought that when I think about this, when I study this sacrificial love and I read and reflect on how much God loves me, sometimes I feel guilty. I feel guilty for my inability to love him the way that I should. I beat myself up for putting other things in front of him and for allowing other things to steal my passion from him and to willingly choose to go against what he wants for my life and to choose my own way. I I feel guilty. And in spite of this, God's love for me does not diminish no matter what we do. I want you to hear that. There's nothing you can do to diminish God's sacrificial love for you because you did nothing to earn it. I, I remember growing up, my brother and I were, playing around in a chair in, my mom, in our living room downstairs, and my mom had this vase that she just absolutely loved. It was a horribly ugly vase. I mean, it was like this tall, like a giant fingernail sticking up. It was horrible. It was like, I guess in the 70s, it was beautiful, but uh, not, not today. And my brother and I were spinning around in this chair, and we hit this vase, and it shattered into a 1,000 pieces. And like it was slow motion like one of those times you just hit it you know and you're like oh my and i remember the first thought that went through my head is like i'm no longer gonna be a part of this family like, I, Mom is kicking me out. Like, well, I am, I'm out. I'm no good to her as a son anymore. Like, I, you're dead to me now. That's just what I was imagining. Like, she was going to walk downstairs and be like, my vase, my vase, you know. And like, boys, you're out of the house at, you know, 7 and 10 years old, you know, whatever we were. I just had this overwhelming thought like, what have I done? Have you ever done that to God? You're like, you've messed up. My mom didn't kick us out of the house. She got a little upset, but then replaced it with some equally ugly vase. And, uh, you know, but God, we we do that to God sometimes. We think, oh, my gosh, what have I done to you, God? How have I, I've hurt you so bad. And that sounds nice. Until we think about it, do you and I actually have the power to hurt God? Do we? Does God grieve sometimes maybe over our actions? Certainly says that in scripture can you and i are we strong enough to hurt the almighty to hurt the creator of the universe you see we think our actions determine his response to us and that means we're the ones in control right but because his love was sacrificial it was not earned it was given nothing we can do to can cause that love to diminish in our life His sacrifice allows me to completely love Him as He has loved me. My sin does not keep me from loving God. Third thing we see is in verses 11 and 12, and it says this. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us that idea of abiding and being perfected in us helps us see that god's love is cultivating it is growing us it is cultivating this verse reminds us that god's love is not this demanding one but it is one that abides in us it is growing in us as we journey with him this love it doesn't expect you to be something that you aren't it does make you though better than you were that's what god's love does Sometimes when we think about this kind of love, we think about relationships maybe we've been in the past that I kind of deem high-maintenance relationships. You ever been in one of those? That's like... You know, you, you've maybe you've not been in them, probably someone's of But you know, you've seen people that, like, all of a sudden they have to start dressing a certain way because they're dating this girl. They can't start; go- they have to stop going certain places. They stop using certain language, like you know, she's cleaning him up, and like you can tell, like the dude's not happy, right? Like he's like all dressed up, but he's got that look on his face, like, what have I gotten myself into, right? I mean, you know, that kind of relationship is not going to last. And we we think about, oh my. God's going to work on me. He's going to turn me into something I don't want to be. Right? He's going to make me do something I don't want to do. And that is not what God's cultivating love is. God's love will change you. It will shape you and mold you and challenge you. But it isn't into something that you aren't or that you don't want to be. I want you to hear this. Instead, his love is turning you into what you were created to be. What he designed you to be to get the most out of this life It's not that he's trying to make you something that you are to lose your identity and be like everybody else, these cookie cutter Christians. One of the things I love about our church, it's that we we value unity over uniformity. We're, we're not trying to make everybody look the same, think the same about every topic, but we are committed as a church to knowing that Christ is the only hope we have for salvation, and through him, he will do a radical work in our life. That's it. How it manifests in your life is going to be different than my life because you're a different person than me. You have a different background than me, a different uh, nature than me. And so God is he cultivates us He's not turning us into something that we don't want to be. He's turning us into our full potential. The fourth thing we see here is found in verse 13 and 15 about God's love. It says, By this we know that you are abiding in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he is in God, the verse reminds us that God gave his spirit. God sent his son. We see that his love here is generous. It's generous. It gives. Whatever we're in need-, need of, God has provided. Do you need counsel? Do you need direction? Do you need peace? Do you need wisdom, assurance, guidance? His spirit is available to you. Do you need companionship, deliverance, perseverance? Patience, self-control, his son is given to us. He's with us. God's generosity is not measured in earthly terms by the accumulation of possessions and external abundance. We, we don't measure by God's generosity by the size of our bank account. That, that's not how we measure whether God has been generous to us or not. Instead, it is measured by a piece of that passes understanding. It's measured by internal abundance that overwhelms our lives and allows us to not just function but flourish in any circumstance. See, God doesn't change necessarily our circumstance, He changes us to flourish in our circumstance. That's the generosity of God. God's generosity has no limits and is focused on the eternal instead of the temporal. God has been generous not just with things but he's been generous with himself the greatest things he's given us were his spirit and his son the fifth thing we see in verse 16 and 17 as we read it we'll see is this says, so we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us that God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God God abides in him by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because he is so also we are in the world. This idea that we can have confidence for the day of judgment lets us know that God's love is a redeeming love. This means that you and I, this love resolves conflict or tension that we have. Sometimes when we fall short in relationships, you know, what do we do? We, we start to avoid people, Right. Like, there's tension in a relationship, even in a marriage relationship or a friendship. Like, we just start to maybe go the other way. The communication ceases a little bit. We stop answering phone calls. We send them to voicemail. We don't answer texts. And we're just like, I don't want to deal with this. And the tension grows. We avoid people. We skirt around tough conversation. And a wedge is driven between us. And we've all experienced this in past relationships. We've all experienced this in our lives. And maybe you're experiencing it. Now, but God's love isn't anything like this. When we fall short, as I said, his love has already overcome our failures. He's already dealt with them. And his forgiveness has already been expressed. If there's any awkwardness or tension in our relationship with God, it's coming from us, not from him. Because God has already given forgiveness. He has already supplied God has redeemed and restored us. All we have to do is simply walk in that redemption and experience it. And so God's love is redeeming. It's not waiting for recompense or revenge to be paid out upon you to then restore you. God has already, through the sacrifice of Christ, covered the cost of your sin. The last quality we'll see is in verse 18 and 19. And I love these verses. It says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So this final quality we see here of God's love is expressed in this idea that his love is empowering. It's empowering. It says that his love casts out fear, what does fear do? It paralyzes us, doesn't it? It keeps us from moving in a new direction. We, we start thinking about it, it overcomes us. We become too scared to take a first step. Fear paralyzes and stops us. But when we know that we are loved and that we have this ever-present love that will never leave us, and we know that we have this sacrificing love that will give us everything that we need, and we know that we have this cultivating love that is growing us into who we are designed to be, and we have this generous love that is giving us everything we'll ever need, and we have this redeeming love that is letting us live at peace, it gives us the ability to overcome any fear. Any fear. No matter what it is, the fear is gone. Perfect love casts out fear. And there is only one place to receive perfect love, and that is from our Creator, God. The love that we experience from Him causes fear to be pushed out of our life. And we walk in triumph and an empowered nature. God's love doesn't limit us or hinder us. And too often we think that, don't we? If I truly surrender to God... There's all these things now I can't do. There's all these limitations on my life. But Scripture says it is for freedom that you have been set free. God's love frees us, not to go into captivity somewhere else, but to live in freedom. So let's close with this thought. I don't know about you, but I I know as I've been studying this and working on this this week, I, I felt this overwhelming sense of God's love. Like, this, this, like I feel loved. I feel empowered. I'm, I'm overwhelmed at the kind of love that God has for me and the kind of love that he has for you. And I want to experience all of this. And I want to express my love to him as well. You know, I can't help but say, as God has loved me, I love God. But look at what verse 20 says here. It says, if anyone says, I love God. Like, you get all this, and you're like, God, I love you, but yet hates his brother. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this command we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. If I love God, I, I have to love others. It's, it's not an option. Like, I don't don't have the luxury of being able to harbor hate in my life. I don't have the luxury to be able to say, I like these people, but I don't like these people. I don't like the people who support this person and don't support this person or who think this way about an issue and think this way about it. Like, we, we start separating and we start identifying and we start doing what we said at the beginning God doesn't do to us. We start making people prove themselves to us. We start making people promote themselves to us and pretend to be something that they are not. And are we really showing them love? We're making them into something that they were never designed to be. These two concepts go hand in hand. As God loves me, I will love others. And the truth is, if I'm not loving others, what this passage says is, it's not that God says, Oh, I'm stopping to loving you. It's literally we have turned the faucet of God's love off in our life. We've said, If, if I'm not going to allow love to flow through me, I'm not going to receive the love of God either. It's this nature of funnel where it just comes in and flows out. God loves me, I love others. God loves me, I love him, I love others. It is this natural flow of our lives. And oh, that our world would operate that way. That those that I disagree with, that those that I have differences with, those that I see in my natural reaction is to step back and to think, I don't, do I really? Oh, that instead we would see that person with the same eyes that God saw us. Compassion, with grace, with humility, and to say, I will set aside my difference because God set aside his differences with me and poured out his love for me. How can I not do the same for others? My my question for the day is this. Are you allowing God to love you from his perspective instead of from your own perspective? Are you defining how God can love you? Are you allowing this ever-present, generous, sacrificial, cultivating, empowering God to love you fully? And are you allowing God's love to then flow through you instead of making others live up to standards that you and I can't even live up to ourselves? I want to ask you today to respond to God's love. How do how do we do that? It it starts with a willing surrender to go, God, I I need you. I need you. I'm not complete without you. I've tried to experience your love and, and other love and so many I need your love. And then to follow Him, to, to follow what He calls us to do and then to love as He loved us. God calls us to live lives of surrender, of obedience and of love. And as we do this, the truth of Christ, the transforming work of Christ plays out in our life.